Salmi should have been a star. The kid's a genius. But there were complications. Benny could have been famous, but life got in the way. It ain't no use to send wonder why, baby. Tony had a brush with success. You the one who writes the songs? Don't you know I'm nothing without you? But had to let it go. I want you to play one of my songs. So it was up to Pete to grab it, hold it, and make himself heard. Working on a night moon Trying to make some front page driving One family. Some music I love. Four generations. This is work. This is play. In love with the sound of American pop. Ralph Bakshi, the creator of Fritz the Cat and Lord of the Rings, now takes modern animation a quantum leap forward with a motion picture of incredible beauty and remarkable power. Whether you dance to it, drive to it, sing with it, or swing with it. You can crank it up, plug it in, or switch it on. If it assaults your senses, rocks your body, or touches your soul. It's American Pop. Theater and the usher nods me in. They know me here. I descend down the staircase behind the movie screen that only select people know about. The door at the bottom opens and I walk in. The sound of movie spoilers fills the air. The barkeep has my drink ready, motions me to the back. The rest of the crew's here already. This is my type of place and these are my type of people. Join me as we discuss the inner secrets of cinema. Have a seat in the spoiler room. And we are live here in the spoiler room tonight. We are kicking off our animated March series of episodes. Yes, that's right. Each week you are going to get a episode covering an animated film, usually mature, except for our third week, which is our special uh, Three Times a Charm series. But tonight we are kicking it off with a very interesting film from Mr. Ralph Bakshi and helping me talk about American Pop from 1981. We first have Mr. Gonzo Riffick himself, the lovely Andrew Shearer, is here tonight. Hello, Andrew. Hey, Mark. Thanks for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. And um, I want y'all to play one of my songs. <laughs> Uh, well, only if you get to keep the coke around, we'll we'll do that for you. So, <laughs> the drugs, 
<laughs> well, I was talking about <laughs> drugs. Uh, drugs, are, drugs are funny. <laughs> <laughs> and with us as well in the his house it's scotty d hello scott how are you hello should i do a line too let's see well, oh, well, that's from, what they from, call from, the, from the movie oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> cocaine <laughs> <laughs> that's funny uh, crippling addiction <laughs> I, I have been running and fetching for you bunch of punks for three years now and I don't want to be no candy man no more. <laughs> you got any coke? What do I look like a soda vendor to you, man? I look oh, like man. a soda machine. <laughs> 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 and so for those of you who may not be familiar with American pop, it is a story of four generations of Russian Jewish immigrant family of musicians whose career parallel the history of American pop music in the 20th century. Uh, that's a that's a decent summary of it. Now, I'm going to throw it out here right now. This was the very first time I've watched this film. Ooh. Uh, I've not watched it before, and let me tell you, uh, I dug it quite a bit. It was not what I was expecting at all. Uh, we'll get down the lines, we'll get the initial reactions, then we'll dive into little bits of this particular of this film. Uh, first, Scotty D., uh, this was your, you, you kind of threw this out here when we first were going to do the first animated month, which is why I wanted mm -hmm. to come back around and visit it. Uh, when did you first see this film and, uh, how did you feel about it? Yeah, I've had this, I've had, uh, kind of been holding like a candle for this one for a while. Um, this is my absolute favorite 2d animated film. Uh, and, um, I think I first caught it. The re I remember being first aware of it when we first got Cable, and American Pop was just premiering. Didn't get to see it then, of course, because it was rated R, and I was a little kid. But I remember my brother used to talk about it, and he used to tr every now and then he decided to stop, you know, being like nasty to me and like really try to like help me out and get to <laughs> get to know me, and because he because he does care. And he is a good guy down deep. So, um, and he knew, like, for instance, he said, uh, he knew that he knew I was listening to Pat Benatar a lot. And he says, you know what? There's the, there was a wonder, he see, he, and he told me about this film that uses one of her songs so perfectly. And it was used, the, and it was American Pop, and it used the Hell is for Children. He tells me, he basically did tell me that part of the story, which is like winds up being like the third act of the story. And finally, much, much later, uh, in I'd say mid 90s, when uh, I was visiting my folks, I, I was living in, at, at the dorms, but I was uh, visiting my folks, and they had finally gotten around to getting like a digital satellite, which at that time was a new thing. And there was like about, you know, five different Cinemaxes and three different movie channels. And what they would do is they would run all these old movies from the 70s and early 80s, which is awesome. And finally, I got to see American Pop. And I think I've seen it about 15 times uh, since. It's just, it's, it is uh, completely different in uh, what we even consider an animated film or an adult-oriented animated film. Uh, it's from Ralph Bakshi, uh, who had already done uh, weird things like, you know, Fritz the Cat, Coonskin, uh, Heavy Traffic, 
and then he'd done like you know more fantasy oriented things like with wizards and uh, uh, Lord of the Rings. But this is not what you would expect from an animated film. It's not a fantasy film. It's not a comedy. It's not an action film. This is a drama. It is a multi generational drama that takes you through like eighty or ninety years uh within 95 minutes uh with the backdrop of this uh the several generations of this uh family of russian jewish immigrants and how many how and it uses the music of america that was popular in america to tell the story in in the background and how many movies do that uh so yeah i'm a huge fan of this movie and that's kind of how I came around to this. It was just like nothing I had ever seen before. Cool. And Andrew, how about you, sir? Uh, your first experience with American pop. I think I saw it on cable as well at my girlfriend's house. And uh, when I got my video store job, first video store job, and started going through, you know, director's work and stuff I was interested in. Um, they like American pop wasn't, you couldn't get it on VHS. Like I could get like all the other ones but I couldn't get that one. So it became kind of like a Holy grail item. Um, and it finally came out at, it finally, uh, in the late nineties, I think on VHS and it was such a fucking huge deal to get it. Mm -hmm. And I, I just loved, loved that movie. I, I have actually watched it for the first time since it came out on tape. Oh really? You too. So yeah, so it's like, since you watched it. Yeah. And, and I remember now just thinking about it, the tape, uh, the cover of the tape, the artwork is really f fucking horrible. He was standing yeah. on the CD and it was kind of yeah. glittering. I'm like, CDs? That shit wasn't even out when this movie was made. What is this? <laughs> no, it was like, it was kind of like they were, because I think it came out on uh, VHS and around DVD at the same time, but they wanted to make it look somewhat modern. And this was almost on the heels of when Heavy Metal came out. We have Finally, very similar looking for, artwork. Similar looking artwork, same studio, and they, Heavy Metal was huge when it finally came out. They said, and it was coming out for similar reasons because the music rights were held up for so long. And so I think they wanted to say, like, oh, if you rented that, you'll want to rent this. So it had the, him standing on the CD, and it also had like a hologram deal when holograms yeah. were big for like two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the I wonder why they. They put the because heavy metal. I remember seeing it in a theater in the nineties, but this one didn't. It just went to video, I guess. It was never. It was never quite as beloved. It was never quite the cult item that heavy metal was. I don't know. I, I that's the only thing I can think of. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, I remember you know seeing it on a um, on the shelves, the video shelves and such, and kind of wondering what the heck you know it's about because. Yeah, it was on DVDs and, and that. And I didn't even read the summary. I didn't even read the summary of this movie when I looked it up. Uh, when we did it, I just knew Scotty wanted to do it. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm down with this. And so I went in completely blind. And it took me aback so much because, as Scott says, it is not what you expect, not even in an animated film, but from a Ralph Bakshi animated film because this is a straight this is a straight drama i mean it easily could have almost been live action which with the style that ralph does it's rotoscoping and so it is kind of live action animated 
in a way. But it, it blew me away because this film opens with, uh, you know, in Russia with the Cossacks chasing his family out of Russia. And I'm like, wait, did I, am I watching the right movie? Uh, <laughs> you know? And, and I'm like, wait, th this is American pop, right? <laughs> um, and, and I wasn't expecting it to, to be such a drama, but, but I dug it. I dug it quite a bit. I got into this family. This, this had, uh, in some ways it had that Godfather vibe of sorts, uh, you know, where, where we get to see the origins in that. Uh, and, and I just, I dug it. I like the soundtrack of it, especially when it got into the jazz part mm -hmm. of it. I mean, cause, uh, you know, how much more signified for, for a certain period and, then you get like when you get into the beatniks and that too, uh, it, it span. It does a really good job, I thought, of covering and representing each uh, significant decade, if you will. Uh, Andrew, how do you how do you think this film playing out as a drama? Uh, do you think it would have done as well as a uh, live action film at all? I mean, it's well, Ralph Bakshi couldn't have done. You know, he couldn't, right. he, he can't handle, uh, he wouldn't have been able to handle making a, a live action movie. That would have been, you know, for somebody like a Coppola or a Scorsese. But, uh, you know, in terms of what he does, I mean, he's often extremely ambitious with his stuff. I mean, he was the guy that did the um, <clears throat> the Lord of the Rings, right? Those cartoon versions. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, Wizards is a pretty big story. You know, he, he was thinking big, you know. And so, um, God, if this were done you know, in a live action uh, with all, with, with all the real music and stuff in it, that, this would be a huge movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, like it wouldn't be like just on cable and can't get on Vija. This would be a, you know, probably an Oscar nominee or something like that. But you know, in the hands of Bakshi, it's just going to be, yeah, it's definitely up there with his best stuff, but I don't know. I don't think he could have, <laughs> I don't think he could have done that. It would have also cost the, uh, modern day equivalent of like $150 million to do it. Let's, uh, and it would have probably been three hours long and stuff like that. But I mean, also, you know, he does the rotoscoping, which you, which you have to remember is also, you know, it's, it's basically actors in the studio that are doing their actions and stuff. If you ever seen like some of the actual like black and white rotoscoping that they do go over but he also has these wonderful painted backgrounds that really mm -hmm. add a lot of character to it. Like for instance, uh, it's not, and it adds the landscapes uh, are paint, have, have these beautiful paintings and sometimes just some incidental stuff. Like at the, uh, towards the end, you will actually, there's some uh, people in a sound booth in a recording studio. The images of them in the, in, in the sound booth are like, whoa, they're like these really wild. I mean, it looks like a painting that you would see in a gallery. Mm -hmm. You know, and these are people <laughs> are yeah. sometimes shot like that in this movie. So he was really using he was really using a lot of inventive stuff to try because he had been he had had this amazing run, whether he had ever, ever like made, you know, mucho bucks or not, which he apparently didn't. Uh, he had this amazing run for about 15, 13, 12 or 13 years, I guess. And he was doing something different. He says, I need to try something different. And uh, he really set himself apart. That's why, 
yeah, he'd done a, a 50s type movie before with Hey, Good Luck. And yeah, he'd uh, attacked, you know, race issues and stuff with Coonskin. This looks completely different from those movies, you know? It's really, it, it's, he took an epic and he encapsulated it in just a little over 90 minutes and in a way that probably only he could have done it. Because I think in anybody else's hands, yeah, it would have been like a Michael Cimino epic. <laughs> you know, it really would have. You know, which I don't have anything against. God rest Michael Cimino, and I love his movies, but it would have been a completely different animal. Yeah, it would have. It it it, it definitely would be more pricey, especially with all the locations and stuff. But he he does well in the ninety five. I mean, it covers a lot of. I was surprised the the. Eight, the amount of years it covers, you know, here it is starting with Cossacks. I'm like, wait, well, huh? And then we get into the immigration story and then we move into, uh, you know, World War One and gangster territory. And then suddenly, uh, you know, eventually through the beatniks to punk rock to new wave. And I'm just like watching this unfold and I'm like, wow, but there really isn't a lot of action, but I found this story. It pulled me in, and I was really curious on where this is going because you you can't quite tell when it first starts out the way it does. Uh, and then during the credits, uh, even the opening credits, you get these paintings that are, like you said, the, the, these paintings that are just a bit surreal and crazy, but the soundtrack to it, it was like a medley of musicals. Yeah, and you get first. First of all, the theme song uh, in the credits. Da, 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 da. It's an orchestral version of Freebird, <laughs> mixed with uh, little bits from here and there. Uh, mostly in the credits, Freebird and As Time Goes By, mm -hmm. which are two very uh, apropos songs for this movie. And then you get like little bits of like, you know, Dixieland jazz going on and and then you get a little bit of something else. And it really it, it kind of it kind of prepares you for what you're expecting. The opening credits with these beautiful paintings, what it reminded me of was these old roadshow pictures where mm -hmm. you'd go see them. And before the movie would start, there was an overture. Yeah, it reminded me of that, you mm -hmm. know, where you and you'd get selections from this whole the score of of this movie that you were about to sit through and it would give you this flavor for, Oh, okay. We're, they're, they're actually taking the time to set the mood. You know, it's hard to say because some movies don't even have opening credits anymore. They don't even have a title sometimes. And this one says, no, we're taking the time to set the mood for what you are about to see, because this thing is going to start bizarre. I mean, it's going to start like a silent movie. And then we're going to take you through. It's going to be basically a, a history lesson as you follow this uh, family, uh, these several generations of people who always wanted to make the most of their musical talent. And none of them could make it work mm -hmm. until the last, you know. New, so. new wave guy. Pete. Yeah, because uh, yeah, because we got like four. And the thing is that you know, it's like people they they just they try, they try, they try, and life takes them in different. Either their their things are cut short, or life takes them in these different directions, and they can't realize what their initial dreams were. Mm -hmm. You know, and there and each and each person is so beautiful in what they do. Uh, they're all they're all actually very talented folks. Uh, oh yeah, you know. It, one way or the other and 
especially when we first get to the uh, first character who is, uh, I forget his name now, Zom- Zalmi. Uh, Zalmi. Zalmi. I love Zalmi. Zalmi is the kid we see who escapes Russia and, and comes over on the boat. And uh, Andrew, I wanted to get your impression first. So we have Zalmi in the streets of early New York. And so he's working the, the clubs, if you will. How did you think they handled the art with the dancing girls in this versus what we may have seen even today yet in how they were drawn? Oh, they're sexy, man. All of them just j- bouncing around and stuff. They remind me of friends of mine, <laughs> to be quite <laughs> honest with you. I saw a lot of people I know uh, reflected in those those bodies of those people. You know, Bakshi has always done so great in, uh, in, in depicting women in, uh, in sometimes a Robert Crumb-esque kind of a way uh, even you know like fritz the cat and in coonskin and stuff like that and so uh it you know this is a very mature kind of story for him and a very different story for him in a lot of ways but it's just the what that art on those women is one of the things he was i feel retained stylistically in this movie yeah i think so too they were drawn they just real- didn't have their titties pop out <laughs> well they were there they're just slightly covered but uh they were drawn realistically i felt like they were it it felt like you were back at that time. I thought he captured it well, not only with the people, the way they were drawn, the style, and the streets. Scotty, D, how about you with the art, particularly with the how he drew the women, not only from this period, but just in general in the film? As you guys said, you know, we can say things like, you know, they were voluptuous, they were curvy, but you guys already said it. They were drawn like real women. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, you know, no swimsuit models from, you know, no plastic surgery back then. No, these are what women look like. And uh, it's what most women look like. And it's kind of strange that you don't get to see that in live action films. So he found a way to put it into an animated film that this is like, this is how women look. And this is how women look because when the first groups of women we see naturally are in vaudeville burlesque that kind of thing and then you know later on you know we see you know the the families that they start and such but uh yeah i mean they're 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 drawn like real people i mean it's uh it's not like they said okay we had the model for this now let's trim the sides no if anything they accentuated Mm -hmm. the curves on them and everything like that to uh, make a point about the world we were looking at and that you know women have different types of figures, you know, and it was, and it was a wonder, and it, it's a great thing to watch, you know, and sometimes he'll be funny with it. I mean, I don't know if you know, oh, there, yeah. there, there was a, there's a shot where like, there was like a more heavy stripper. And yeah. if you notice the, if you, if you said, Hey, the uh, frame is shaking when she bounces, that was an accident. <laughs> you know, he was, you know, doing it, you know, to show a very voluptuous person, like a, um may wet or kitten natividad or whatever and (laughs) and uh, but uh, yeah it just shows this great variety and i think that bakshi always kind of really excelled at that in fritz the cat heavy traffic stuff like that showing the parts of society that mainstream live action film doesn't want to show you the main difference here being is that there, those were very obviously cartoons, and this has a s- sense of realism those movies don't have. So it was saying, no, 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 not only am I showing you that, I'm show- telling you that's the way it is. You know, so I liked that quite a bit. Yeah, 
it, it, it just it took me a little back in a good way because we're used to seeing like the roaring 20s and that and the flappers and that uh, not look, you know, they, they look Hollywood. They didn't you know, even back then a bit. They, they looked Hollywood. And, and here you've got to it felt like real people, which add to the realism of an animated film, which uh, this film handles a number of things, I think, a lot better than uh, uh, live action films do. Uh, even when uh, Zalmi is moving up in the world uh, and he basically kind of has his first uh, experience with a lady, uh, I, I kind of liked how that whole scene was handled. That was uh, so sweet. <laughs> It was such a sweet scene. It really was. <laughs> it, it was a sweet scene. And, and, and you know, the character feel, felt real. In fact, all these characters, especially the, the four people that we follow through on this uh, journey through time, basically, they, they all felt real. It felt, and I think seeing the history of the parents prior to them, I think got you even more invested in the characters as it went along. Would you say, Scott, that it, you got, as this movie goes along, you get more invested because you know the history of this character? Oh, yeah. And, I mean, by the end, uh, uh, might, you might be wanting to kill, cover this, but I mean, by the end, the uh, we have now uh, the last person has almost no real connection to their past. Right. He's given uh, at one point he is given a harmonica and told a name. That's a, that's the most he gets, you know. So unless this kid, you know, went into a library and started researching family trees, which is a possibility, who knows? Um, he doesn't really have a connection. He didn't know these generations personally that came before because the last person we follow follow is an illegitimate child uh, as a result of a one night stand. And, um, but it's in the blood there. And we f follow this, you know, we follow Zalmi, you know, and we even, he's the one character we see through to old age, which I thought was nice, mm -hmm. uh, with his grandson looking on. We follow his son, uh, who has his, ex uh, who unfortunately has his experience in, uh, World War II. Yeah. And then we have, uh, follow his grandson who has his problem. And then we get this thing, but the, it's showing how they react of each generation. If you notice, they don't even have to be present, though, to have the influence. There's this mm -hmm. wonderful bit. It's just before the end. <laughs> it's just <laughs> as uh, Pete, who is the last person we see at this, and he's the one who's destined to make it, you know. Uh, we hope, you know, but, you know, it's the – if you watch the trailer, basically, this is what it tells you guys. I'm not giving away too much here. Um it, it, and if you look, the very first scene, uh, Zalmi's father is killed in the movie mm -hmm. because they are in the Cossacks are invading and it, they're uh, a Jewish Orthodox in Russia. And he says, I can't leave. I have to finish the prayer. Well, the prayer is very musical. And so even though there's nobody left in the congregation, he's waving his arms and he's singing to God and everything like that. The very, at the very end, Pete is passing by and he sees a Jewish Orthodox, like a Hasidic, mm -hmm. singing the prayer. 
and he yeah. stops in the doorway and and his sunglasses goes down and he looks just stares right at him and i don't he doesn't even know why but he snaps his fingers along yep that's the beat that's the beat i dig it i dig it and moves on the blood is deep with these people <laughs> it's really deep and so you see the influence of all these generations as they go on it's not just the ambition of one it's the ambition of all of them as they go along is a it's a really fascinating way to do it in seeing their history, getting invested in it, you also, each time you're hoping this is the one that succeeds. Andrew, would you say you get more invested in these characters as this film goes along? Yeah, because uh, they spend more time uh, with Tony uh, really mm -hmm. personally than they do with any of the other ones. And so as a result, uh, he's the one you kind of connect with the most and they have the most amount of familiar music uh from the period of tony as well but um really the uh, even though they don't uh give you as much with the other guys you get just enough to where um they're more than just like part of the you know getting to that point the part that i was very affected by was um benny who is uh tony's dad getting shot there um because you know Tony never knew his father, and so they kind of show like what kind of the result of of the person never knowing their dad, because you know um, uh, of Benny, war. Benny, yeah, Benny knew his dad, and so but yeah, the, when the Nazi comes up to him and he sees him, but he continues to play the piano. That is like that would be a classic scene in like any movie, you know. That was brilliant right there. Oh, that that that, that scene got me because here. Uh, was it Benny is the one that uh, enlisted yeah. uh, to the dismay of his, his uh, dad, Zalmi, because uh, Zalmi was, uh, became a, got involved in, in the gangsters and the, uh, the uh, prohibition and speakeasies and such. And he got in with the organized crime. And so he arranged that wedding. Uh, it was an arranged wedding with Benny and, and this uh, other organized crime boss's daughter. And then he decides to enlist. It's like almost like you get that feel like it's his only way out, but he's also doing his patriotic duty. It's also oh. kind of crazy too, because like, you know, he comes from a mafia uh, life and mm -hmm. he, he doesn't, he meant he doesn't get killed, um, you know, as a, as a criminal or he's not as a bystander of criminals all the times that, you know, at the time they're shooting up the club, man, you know, and he's like getting, he's covering to make sure the kid doesn't get hurt. And then he goes to war and just gets shot by, you know? Yeah. Of, and yeah. And of course, Zalmi's upset because when he goes, because he's, you know, how he got his voice, Zalmi has this voice like this. You know, he always wanted to sing, but he has this voice. And the reason he has that is he got shot in the throat uh, while performing uh, for the for the troops as like a novelty act in World War One. Yep. And so to hear his sons, like he says, and so there's they have this sequence where his he told his dad, yep, I, I'm, I'm enlisting, I'm going in. You know, and his the son is just has no interest in this life that Zalmi has set up for him. He's like, no, I like playing the piano in these jazz clubs that I don't have to. I like doing this, and I'm going to go out and do this. He says, I gave it the office. He says, yeah, but you took two. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is the thing <laughs> that, you know, Zalmi's saying, you know what I gave, you know, in the last war? He says, yeah, but then you came back and you started taking. 
Yeah. You know, and uh, so it was kind of a rebellion there. And there's this sequence where he's playing the piano. He finds this piano in this old, you know, house that they're searching door to door. Well, it's and, after, uh, after a bombing, they bombed a town and he and his troops are exploring the bombed out town. And yeah, he finds that piano. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And then, yeah. The, and then the troops right behind and he did, he doesn't really check very thoroughly because he just sees the piano and immediately like by instinct just heads towards the piano and uh, the German soldiers behind him and he keeps playing and you kind of hope that there's going to be, it's going to wind up being like that Polanski movie. Well, which was course was based on a true story, the pianist, yeah. uh, but it's not, it's, it's, no. it's, it's, it's a lot more cruel than that. And I thought that was an interesting way to end that scene in a, a very powerful way because he plays and then the German who's just about to shoot him, the Nazi, he bumps into a chair and he turns around and he looks. He's like, oh, hey. And he doesn't reach for his gun. He goes back to the piano keys to finish playing and the German thanks him and then shoots him. And I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, <laughs> you know, to me, that struck me really. I'm like, Wow, that is unexpected, but in, it, it was also very powerful, and it, it you know it reminded me a bit of the scene from from uh, Saving Private Ryan, where uh, the one one Nazi is is basically slowly stabbing the American soldier and singing him like this German lullaby or whatever. It, oh, it just yeah. it's just a that happens it, in that movie. What in in Saving Private Ryan? That is fucked, man. You never saw Saving Private Ryan, buddy? <laughs> I, I, I left like after 15, 20 minutes. Oh, did you oh, okay, really? Yeah. Sorry. Well, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rough first 45 minutes in that movie, let me tell you. It, it didn't, didn't mean to spoil it for you. No, I, I won't ever see the rest of it. I was like, what, but, you know, if I want to see like a gore movie, I'll watch a Texas Chainsaw. <laughs> it, it had that same tone where in the Saving Private Ryan one, what makes it even worse is one of the fellow American soldiers is just sitting there scared out of his mind as the Nazi and his buddy are fighting and the Nazi is laying on top of his buddy and slowly pushing the knife in and singing a, a, a lullaby. And here we get music where uh, Benny, it's, it's like he has resigned himself to getting shot. He, he gives it to the German rather than putting up a fight because and he grabs rather... that piano. He throws his arm over it very dramatically. That was a great scene. It, it was, it was a very powerful scene and you get a number of scenes like this that I thought were just great representations of things. Hell, even better representations than what we get out of live action films. A lot of times uh, in this, especially with the way the characters were set up because they really embodied, you know, that, time because here benny you know is is the child of a world war one vet and so you got world war ii so he goes off and he actually dies while his world war one vet father lives and he's got a kid who he's never met who's growing up and then that sparked into the uh that sparked into the 60s or the 50s and uh we get we spend the longest time with tony and Man, this guy really goes through a lot. <laughs> uh, what'd you think of the Tony generation? Because Zalmi and Benny were kind of your standard guys, but then there's Tony, who we spend the most time with. Uh, Scott, what'd you think of Tony? 
Tony is very reactive mm-hmm. to the world. He is not in, he does not fit in. He knows he doesn't fit in. He, he is not interested in fitting in. And um, he, he kind of rejects everything that has been set out for him. Because, you know, by that time, you know, he's got a new stepfather. He's got uh, everything. And uh, we hear that we know that his, like, mother is probably mostly absentee. They say the mother doesn't do anything but sit in her room and listen to that record. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of think what that record is, you know. It's her husband, uh, her ex, uh, her dead husband, rather. Her her, dead Tony's, husband. Tony's yes. father, to, to specify. Uh, and, and so you go through, and he's gets into beat poetry. He sees he sees uh, what <laughs> Richard Mall does the voice. <laughs> uh, who is Richard Mall? You know he was so involved, known for uh, for Night Court, and he did such a great job on that show. But he has done so many things over the years, and this is the time when he was taking so many roles. He'll show up in a Charles Band film, and then you'll see him like in a bit part here or something. Uh, Richard Mall is as beat poet, but since he's does that poet is performing Howl and given what he looks like, uh, it's Allen Ginsberg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be Allen Ginsberg. And, and he hears it and he's transfixed and he does that whole thing. He starts riding the rails, starts going across country. He has this very dramatic beat poet way of talking where he is always performing for some unseen audience, you know? And he has this thing, and that leads him all the way into... And he he does that. We don't realize how much time has passed unless you listen to the music in the background. Unless mm-hmm. you hear the music go from uh, Herbie Hancock's Cantaloupe Island, uh, Dave Brubeck, Take 5, all the way into where he meets this girl, and it's playing Sam Cooke's You Send Me. And... Uh, you can listen to the music. Unless you listen to that music, you don't realize how much time has passed, but... We are finally then into the middle '60s when he meets this like band of hippies and such. <laughs> Man, and, they, they classic hippies too. Oh, they were. They were totally, and they were. You could tell they were totally based on like Jefferson Airplane, Mamas and the Papas, Big Brother and the Holding Company. That those types of bands, and they had you know they had the female singer who you know you Grace Slick, Mama Cass, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Janice, whatever you want to do, and they had, and they had the other groups, you know, who would, and she would kind of cycle through the members of the band because they had this free love weird shit, and he gets into it, and that's where he finally finds his spot to make his music and write his songs because he has no musical talent otherwise than other than writing, and he starts writing like these Bob Dylan songs and such like that, and uh, he, yeah, we spend the most time with him because I'd say he. Uh, encapsulates the kind of the biggest chunk of American pop history, going all the way from jazz into psychedelic rock, basically. And um, of course, that's what leads us all through the other rest of it. I could just go on and on and on, but then I'd ram- <laughs> but then I'd ramble even more than I've already have. So yeah, we spend the most time with him because he has the biggest chunk of musical history, I'd say, uh, a most diverse set of musical history in that character. Well, because uh, the other ones, there was a specific genre, but Tony, I think, also embodies the speeding up of how fast the times changed a lot more during that era. How about you, Andrew? Would you say that because, you know, Zalmi kind of set in his ways and even Benny was set kind of in his ways 
And then we get Tony who just continually changes during the time period in America history that had the most change. W would you agree with that or? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, he's a, he's a characteristic of somebody that was around during that time, but he's also just, he's a, he's a lost person. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he didn't have uh he didn't have the the dad and he's hung up about that he's always upset about that like he's <laughs> that defines him and um so he doesn't i don't know he kind of doesn't ever kind of see his worth and therefore just kind of blows with the wind and goes wherever he feels like going and stop and start and uh, that's why when he uh, ends up in in kansas and then uh, gets a woman pregnant unknowingly i would imagine and then he just leaves how why it hits him so hard when mm -hmm. he finally ends up back there years later and realizes that this blonde haired kid is his own son. And other than the piano uh, shooting uh, in the movie, that scene where, um, where uh, he realizes that, that he's a dad and he's been a father this whole time. And yet he wasn't there. It just, they don't have any words. They don't have him, even though you could tell he's screaming, they play a song instead, which is fantastic. Um, but that's like another like great moment from the movie because he just, uh, you know, he, it finally kind of all hits him, um, this, you know, range of emotions and stuff. It's pretty intense. Well, he was fighting so hard not to be his dad. Yep. And it's that reality check when, oh, I, damn, I am my dad. <laughs> yeah, and the animation is uncharacteristically really detailed and great uh, mm -hmm. for a Bakshi movie. You know, he's he's a good filmmaker, but his the art is not always the greatest. You know, just due to the rotoscoping technique, and and, and he just he's not going to get like really detailed um, emotions off of the the drawings. You know, right. but I think in that scene is one of the most well drawn out of any of his films. Um, and it needs to be, you know, um, but it, that, that, that's another reason why that moment is so great is because the artwork is, is pretty amazing there. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. But what's also interesting, too, is it's an interesting point in Tony's life and things really take a crash kind yeah. of uh, because he'd, he'd been kind of living the style for a while. So then he's got this kid who uh, he never really admits to the kid that he's his dad. And the kid never really digs any further, but uh, until that moment on the bench, so Pete, who's the blonde-haired kid uh, that cross paths with Tony while he's with the band, Tony takes him. I love how it circles back to New York because Tony left to try to get all the way west, and eventually his he he gets back to his home city <laughs> where. Where, where he's got Pete and he's in a way still doing the same thing as the family business. Only instead of alcohol, he's, he's dealing and, and doing drugs. Tony becomes a, a major uh, addict, but also a dealer. And it was interesting how that all came back around in the circle of life, if you will, uh, with that character. And, Again, more great representation, I think, of the period and the style. But also, as this film goes along, it represents, and, and I could be wrong, but it represents the the separation of children following, even though the, he does eventually follow in the footsteps, Pete does, 
where I'm getting to is the the tradition thing is lost in, in it to where you don't have your dad going, well, I was a musician, so you're going to be a musician type of thing. And in real life, that's that's where we are now, where I think legacy, that's the word I was looking for, legacy isn't quite as strong or as important nowadays as it was back in the 30s and 40s and i think that's represented in this film as well would you say andrew that it that, that's represented in here is kind of that especially considering we have the illegitimate child here of uh tony that they kind of representing or he's making a statement about how legacy family legacy isn't as important as it once was yeah i mean you, you he picked the right era to do it in because the value system is completely changing mm-hmm. you know in the in the time in in which uh uh tony is kind of coming up you know and so if it was going to happen there that kind of break from all of that um it's reflective of the way that culture was going too so it was a, a nice way to uh to comment on that without the use of music necessarily which is how um Bakshi chooses to show the passing of time and the cultural shifts um usually in the movie but to do it in that way i think is one of those things that probably most people wouldn't notice so that's really rad that you picked up on that oh thanks yeah i just it, it's one of those things where i was watching it going wow that's that's where it is showing that bloodline or you know that legacy gets muddled scott what about you did you get kind of that just as well that that it was kind of being reflective of current times where people what they used to do or what their parents used to do didn't mean as much as what they want to do that's a really good question uh, <laughs> the, uh, sorry, man. No, that's a really good question. It does kind of reflect that because they become, become t- the Pete character is so detached. As I said, he doesn't know much about his family tree. He says, "Oh, my dad is this big mystery." I think he, Pete figures it out. I don't know when Pete figures it out, but there's that moment when they first meet each other and they look. And as soon as Tony looks into the kid's eyes, he's like, "Oh shit." it's like he's got her hair he's got my eyes you know oh my god and um it's uh you know he and so he he like gets right away like as andrew was going through that scene it's a beautiful sequence it's a really heart-wrenching scene uh i've mentioned uh when we were doing social media stuff like facebook stuff uh before watching this i kind of Bemoan us like my favorite movies always make me cry, and this movie makes me cry. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like when he realizes first when he realizes uh, who is that he's had this kid, as you guys mentioned, and it's juxtaposed with uh, this now really strung out and on the last night of her life, saying, "I'm going to sing to this little boy," mm-hmm. the lead singer of that band. And then it goes on to this them living on the street, Pete and Tony, and they they're so detached from society, and it's definitely an unorthodox father son relationship. Neither one of them admitting that they know until this moment. You know, why have you stuck around so long? Well, why the hell do you think? You know, and <clears throat> that's when he gives this harmonica mm-hmm. to the kid, He's, and that's when he tells him. The name, as I have mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, yeah. he just gives him the name. He doesn't talk. He says, "I never knew him, but this is his name. He was supposed to be some sort of a genius." It was probably the first family connection this kid really felt, 
But as I've said, that it, it's like this inherent thing, though. They're detached completely from their history, but they can't avoid it. It is just really deep down into the marrow. Mm-hmm. And uh, they and, and so Pete continues to have this ambition. He's always been writing the songs. Even when Tony gave up writing songs, Pete took over writing songs. Um, and uh, he becomes basically he becomes a coke dealer to yeah. support himself uh, because his dad, you know, after this acknowledgement, his dad kind of pawns his guitar, pawns the kid's guitar for a ton of coke. Yeah. And says, and basically says, don't sell it all in one place. Gives him this, has somebody tell him, don't sell it all in one place. Because he's basically saying, look, I'm probably going to die soon the way yeah. I'm living. Uh, the best thing I can possibly do for you is give you some means of survival. And also, you know, which sounds kind of noble, but let's face it, Tony's also kind of a coward and a mess and a failure also. So let's not make it too noble. <laughs> Tony's, Tony's the most screwed up character. Oh, he's a he he's he he he's a total he totally destroys himself. It's 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 a real sad it's a real sad story. And uh and he hands him and he has this kid and then the kid becomes the coke dealer to support himself and grows up on the streets. Grows up about as rock and roll as you can imagine. <laughs> just like uh if you ever like go back to those old um journals of like punk bands that uh, came up in like New York of the seventies and stuff. Uh, you li- and you listen to, you know, uh, uh, like D- uh, some of Dee Dee Ramone's stories about being a smack addict and on the street and how they came up with, you know, what is 53rd and third about, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, and you, then you hear these other stories of the, of the bands of that era. I mean, he lives about grows up about as rock and roll as you can imagine. Uh, unfortunately, because it's a rough way to grow up. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it. But it becomes deep in the marrow, and uh, yeah. Incidentally, that is the sequence where, as I mentioned before, the uh, Pat Benatar sequence comes in. Yeah. Uh, Hell is for Children was a song she wrote about uh, child abuse, mm-hmm. and in this sequence, it's to illustrate how Pete has had this very unorthodox upbringing as he's become a drug dealer on the street. Uh, yeah. so yeah. Did you get that punk vibe, uh, Andrew? I know, I know you. Uh, you're in the yeah. scene, or or you were in the scene. Yes. Um, <laughs> old, old <laughs> that, punk. That, that scene when he was taken uh, from basically when he gets up off the bench and he's starting to, to deal. Did you did you get a punk vibe at all? Well, yeah. I mean, they have Sex Pistols music in there, sure. and you kind of. I mean the 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 last part of the movie kind of is fair it was when i revisit is very confusing uh to me um as far as because they, they jumbled up when the music was because pat benatar's song would chronologically should have come last yeah absolutely so to have um bob seeger which is around the same time maybe right before the sex pistols uh, and then um to have leonard skinner after you know i mean it was that that all was really really odd to me but um the uh what's great is that um he when he goes in to see that band in the studio that's fear that's yes. the, that's the uh, la punk band fear um 
if you've ever seen decline of western civilization that's the band you remember from that movie um so that's uh that that's the really neat thing for fans of punk music is not necessarily hearing the sex pistols song and seeing him selling drugs to punks or whatever because that's not really american punk either Right. Uh, <laughs> but fear is an American punk band. So having them cameo in it uh, is uh, really awesome. And they fear, the only... <laughs> fear is fear. Is, um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I almost forgot about that. Fear is one of the coolest bands. If anybody's listening and they're either, they, they're a young person or they're an old person who didn't know fear is one of the coolest bands. I think one of the, what, the first band to ever like get banned from Saturday night live. Cause they killed the set. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They destroyed the set. One of Polisky's favorite bands. There's a shock. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they were fantastic. And if that's not enough for you, you know, leaving went on to be Mr. Body and Clue. So. Yeah. No, it really does. Having having been a, uh, a a musician and gone through all of that stuff and seen all of that stuff and it was one thing. And uh, revisiting the film, I didn't quite connect with it like I did when I was a, uh, you know, like in my late teens and mm -hmm. early twenties seeing it. But as a parent now, it was a big, you know, that was, I think the stuff that really kind of connected me. Cause you do think about like, what am I, what am I doing? Um, having a, a, a kid and passing my stuff along and how much does it matter as far as family history goes, them needing to know where they came from and what those people did and, and what the fuck difference does it make if they do the same thing as me or not? And if my last name carries on, if my genetics carry on, you started to really like think about how, how little that shit actually really does matter. And you just, you know, so I, I was I really kind of on that trip while I was watching the, <laughs> watching this movie to be quite honest. Yeah, it, it struck the parental chord with with me as well. Uh, I I was really kind of relating to the to them as they were not as the characters before they were you know parents, but then after they were parents, I was I was kind of more connecting on that end. But yeah, and I ha I don't have a boy. You have you have two boys, so I'd imagine it's still even different for you. Yeah, for me it was. I mean, you know, when he he discovered. Yeah, I'm sitting there going, "Wow, how would how would that be? I I can't even imagine." And and you know what floods through your brain, and I thought they captured that well. And then and then I'm just getting kind of frustrated with the dad. <laughs> on one hand, they're spending time together. On the other hand, though, dad's taking him on drug runs. I'm like, "What the hell, man?" <laughs> yeah, and he fucked up the cereal too. He's like, "Man, that was really cool of him to bring that cereal," and then you just you know shit on him. He just really didn't want to do it. <laughs> it was yeah. confusing the way he doesn't he... like he doesn't like corn, <laughs> <laughs> corn flakes. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, even even when uh, Tony was dealing, he dumped the drugs in the piano at one point when we saw him. It, mm -hmm. it, that was great. All these little subs, all these little things that he doesn't. They're, they're 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 just leftovers, you know, from from the from the in the DNA that he's not even aware of, you know. Uh, I think we'll wrap it up here tonight. We'll just go down real quick, and uh, you guys, uh, unless uh, one of you had a question for the group tonight on on any discussion that we might not have touched with Andrew, did you have anything? Particular? Oh, you you asked us to do homework, so I thought of a question. Awesome. Well, uh, why don't we go ahead with the question then? I want to know what you guys think happens to Pete after you know becoming a big rock star. Does he 
does he have a family or does he just get hooked on dope and you know eat shit what do you think happens to him scott i have a very um kind of weasley but unorthodox opinion of how movies end and it's that that is that when they end they end mm. when the when it when the when it fades to black there's a few exceptions i can think of where i know i imagine something more ha that happens but like kind of like how buck henry kind of crushed everybody's dreams by saying where uh, dustin hoffman and katherine ross ended up at the end of the graduate yeah, no, like no. As far as I'm concerned, at the end, once that his fades to black, it continues on in a straight line. Oh. That's the end. Uh, so what happens? He makes it. He's a legend. Does is he a legend forever? I don't know. Maybe, maybe. You know, uh, I don't think that he hits a thing. I actually don't. I don't even like it when they come back years later. Like. Uh, as we're recording this, Train Spotting Two is supposed to come out in a few weeks. I have no interest in seeing it, and I've and that and I that was a movie I went to see four times in the theater, the original, you know. And it's because like no, it ended fine. Just let let just let it be. Um, so I kind of have this opinion, uh, and I know it's unorthodox. I know it's Weasley. I know it's the Chicken Way Out, but that I say like when you see him victorious, raising his arms up, grinning. You know that I made it. I made it. I did it. Not re and um. You have this kind of understanding that it's not just him. You see this flashback to the last ninety years of history in his family as he's performing. Uh, that this is the culmination of all that. That's where the story ends. That's where the story ends. I believe that it's right there, and I think that um. If I can quote the uh, last uh, narration line from the movie Shock Treatment, <laughs> the, sun, the sun never sets for those who ride into it. So I think that that's, that's pretty much it. It continues on just from there. Well, my answer for that uh, isn't quite like Scott's. Uh, I do like to occasionally posit what went on afterwards though some movies i don't because i'm like well then our hero would end up in jail and arrested and and doing time but yeah uh, <laughs> in this case uh where pete ends up is starting a grunge band no um that's where uh, his kid ends up <laughs> well actually in all honesty the way i felt with this and the way it ended and the way his character went i almost felt the bloodline ends here with pete in all honesty, I, I, with the way they had the Pete character, I don't see him having children. I, I honestly don't. He stays successful for a while. He does that, but I don't see him having children because of the father that he had. Um, I, I just, I don't see him having it. I, I think that bloodline actually ends there. I know it's depressing, but just, from the way they set it up, I'm like, yeah, he's successful. He makes his money, and and he, uh, you know, better to burn out than fade away. And and I think that's what happens to to our guy. What about you, Andrew? To you answer your own question. Oh, I think in that concert, yeah, he falls off the stage and tears off his testicles. <laughs> 
<laughs> I knew it. I knew he was not going to give us this. I knew uh, it. <laughs> I, I love you, Andrew. I love you for that exact reason right there, man. That's... <laughs> Wow. Uh, Scott, how about you? Did you have a question for the group uh, that we haven't touched on yet before we close well, up? Not a real specific one. Uh, okay. I guess I'll give, I guess it's more on Bakshi as a whole. And I know you're going to cover uh, fire and ice later on this month, I believe. So yeah, you got next, more, next week, actually. So you've got more Bakshi to go, but yes, since this is such an unorthodox film, it, it, as we covered, it's not an, a- an action film, a fantasy, a comedy. It's just a drama. You know, it's a weird thing. So, you know, I mean, it's something we still don't see a lot of in animation. Um, so n- these days, there's more of an acceptance for adult-oriented animation, you know, with anime and all that other stuff. Still not from, like, a wide-release theatrical standpoint, though. But I think with the acceptance the way it is, it's a two-part question. One, do you... Bakshi had a really good run. Eight films in 11 years. Mm -hmm. That got theatrical release, some limited, some wide. None of them, I don't think, did, like, gangbusters huge, but... Enough to keep him going for the next movie. Do you think the whole reason he got to be do what he did was because people were experimenting, people were trying to see what stuck because uh, the film uh, landscape was, was so changing. Do you think he would be his style? He would be more accepted as an auteur, as an artist today. Like, do you think that if he came out today with these movies or with movies that were kind of sort of like this, do you think he would be more embraced, more accepted, and not just by the fringe? But also another of the follow-up question is that anybody who did come up like that and release movies like this, would they have been able to do it without without Ralph Bakshi? Ooh. Andrew? Well, I mean, certainly it was ahead of his time. You know, and and I don't think in America there is still really a context for adult animation. You know, I kind of got into that when I talked about uh, uh, the Red Turtle. Um, we just don't, you know, we don't hear adults don't watch cartoons. We just that's just not a thing that happens, and the rest of the world is kind of not like that. Um, but I do think, yeah, he would he would have a great place um, in the indie world because if you look at uh, at films like uh, the, the Wrinkles movies or um, Chico and Rita, which is pretty much the closest anyone's ever come to American pop, uh, there, uh, there's definitely um, a, an audience for that that would def- would understand it and be ready for it. And there are distributors who would know exactly what to do with it. So yeah, I think I think it would definitely he'd be right at home there alongside movies like that and uh, Tokyo Godfathers, things of that nature. And do you think if someone or do you think someone up and coming today, coming out with a large body of, of films like that, do you think they'd be able to still uh, be successful in that without Bakshi? Uh, probably, probably not. I mean, that's they would they would. There's nobody to look to, as far as the, this kind of work. You know, I mean, that's just there's there's just no. He was he was the first to do it. You know, there's there's no like 
you know, Disney didn't make anything like that. And anime hasn't produced anything like that. And even some of my favorite stuff from, from other countries, like I, I talk about Tom Moore a lot cause I really love his stuff too. It, uh, he did it and mm-hmm. everybody that's going to try to go there, particularly if making, uh, using the r- rotoscope technique or animation that kind of looks like it. I have, did I put the link in the comment box for uh, Kanye West's video for heartless? Cause that is a, um, they they nail and they intentionally nail uh, the the look and feel of the uh, the animation from uh, American Pop. Yeah, that was an actual tribute. I think. I'm, yeah, it, yeah, I it's, it's very well done too. I mean, it's it's not quite great animation on purpose. I I saw that because I'm so behind on current music that I finally saw that video earlier tonight, and nice. like, yep, absolutely, like, wow, that is a real homage to that to this movie uh that that's that the video that they do for that yeah but i would yeah i would i would say um yeah there are distributors now that could do again you know, focus features uh g kids uh, places like that uh the what is that the shooting gallery or whoever it was i can't remember who who releases uh, tom Moore's stuff but uh yeah it would definitely there's more i think he would be he would do better now and i it would be cool to see him uh make a one more feature before he kicks it i know he's got to be a million years old by now you see yeah he was he was born in 38 he's tried to do stuff for years and i think he's done uh short subjects recently but after fire and ice he could really you know basically the studio said okay we know what hip it's now so all these people we that we were experimenting with over the years yeah you can go go away now we've got the (laughs) formula we we're, we're comfortable again so he went to do, you know, TV with like uh, he did the Mighty Mouse series in the '80s, for instance. That was back Bakshi, and um, then he's done like short subjects over the years. But he's he hasn't been able to quite really get a lot, except for Cool World, which is mostly successful. Like the the animation is great, the live action not so much in that <laughs> yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool World is definitely one of those uh, teeter-totter type of films for that. I yeah, still uh, love it, but it is, it's flawed, let's just yeah. say that. <laughs> the last uh, thing that Baxter did was uh, another short, Last Days of Coney Island, which he released on YouTube uh, back in October of 2016 for free, apparently, yeah. after it had yeah. a short run. Um, but yeah, he keeps doing stuff. I'm on his Facebook thing, so ah. <laughs> he's and, still going. And uh, just to quickly answer your question, uh, basically what Andrew said, uh, I agree that there's a there's a audience, there is a a venue, there is an outlet for his stuff. So if he just started coming out with this stuff today, they'd be able to find someone, they'd be able to find their audience, probably even more so now than back then. Uh, and I think it'd get limited theater theatrical release, but it'd be definitely one of those that would get uh, make it wider, say on demand or whatnot. Um, you know, I, I think there'd definitely be an audience looking for stuff like this, especially with our generation who are a group of grownups who actually watch animation, which is why I can't understand why there's not more mature animated films because I'm like, are they not paying attention to all of us? <laughs> You know, um, and someone up and coming, uh, you know, and yeah, without Bakshi, I don't think you would, you would have it. Or if it was, it wouldn't be, um, nearly probably as successful because Bakshi did set a bar standard show, show how you can do this. And it really laid the groundwork 
And I think without that, I think it'd be a lot tougher uh, for someone to try to be successful with uh, without that influence. Because even in the modern, even in your popular mainstream animated films, you can see some influences, um, you know, of how the, the story was done and how an animated film was being told. And so, yeah, uh, but basically pretty much along the lines of what Andrew answered. So how about you, Scott? <laughs> Uh, could they, would he, uh, Bakshi find a more, uh, a, a more receptive audience today and a larger audience today? Yes. <laughs> I think he would, uh, it might be a little hyperbolic to say this. I think he would be as beloved as Studio Ghibli, although definitely not the same audience, understand? No. <laughs> I think that, I think that give, I think that he is one of the very few, uh, filmmakers who would be, would find it a huge benefit that the uh, audience is not just limited to whoever can catch it in a theater. I think he would be greatly added, aided by the internet, by streaming, by video. Uh, yes, absolutely, I think he'd, he'd do it. However, paradoxically, do I think that any other filmmaker who tried to make it go, a go of it today, could he, uh, would he have had that groundwork? No. Not absolutely not any more than say um, people in the seventies, you know, who came who who came in from like the eighties and nineties with their indie films and stuff like that. You see these little tiny indie films. Would any of them uh, done it without Robert Altman? Absolutely not. <laughs> and it's kind of still amazing to me that Ralph Bakshi is not as beloved as a Robert Altman. Because, okay, maybe you're not very receptive to his work. There's a reason why I used Altman because I don't. I'm not very receptive to Robert Altman's work. Robert Altman is very hit and miss with me, and mostly miss. It doesn't really click with me. However, I do recognize what he accomplished and that he did something different. He told you – he gave us all a different way to tell stories and a different way to focus on characters. And so that I think that even if it, he doesn't click, that his influence is felt for, through filmmakers that you do admire. So it's really – blows my mind that he is not as admired as a figure like that today well i think i think part of that is the subject matter of some of his some of his work oh is, sure you know, he pushes the envelope you know yeah. and you know but you know his films are great hey you know i love robert crumb you know r crumb i love robert crumb uh but you know what if I have the choice between reading a fritz the cat comic and watching the movie fritz the cat I'm sorry. <laughs> I love the movie Fritz the Cat. <laughs> I know Crumb hates it, but I love the movie. You know, uh, he's a uh, you know he did he showed that you could take this medium and take it in a completely different direction, just like Altman did, and like a, a lot of our masters did. And I think that he deserves his props for that. So it's it's kind of a par my two part question was kind of paradoxical. Could he have found a more receptive audience today? Yes. Anybody else could they have made it with if he wasn't there? As Andrew said, ahead of his time, way back from 1972 to 1983. Absolutely not. Well, I think if Criterion did a box set of Bakshi, it would be the, it would it would be explosive. Oh yeah, I hope I so. 
because I think it's the cineasts that like his stuff because it wasn't all, all over TV all the time. They're adult cartoons. That's just not something that we had on television, period. And it's not something that once Cartoon Network had like Adult Swim that they picked, licensed and showed at midnights on weekends and stuff like that. He just isn't, his stuff isn't out there. It's not as easy to find. I think Netflix had Fritz the Cat, but that was maybe it. I think yeah. maybe yeah. heavy traffic showed up at one point. I don't know, but... Uh, he's just not as well known. And I think we'll wrap it up tonight. I want to thank Andrew and Scott for joining us in this discussion. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we've got Fire and Ice coming up next week. We may be doing a bonus episode in between if I can get some people in for a live action film, but we will be featuring at least each week an animated film as part of Animated March. So here's where we go down the line real quick, and you can find out where these fantastic people are also at on the interwebs and such. Andrew, go ahead. Oh, man, I did want to give a final thought on the, on American Pop, if that's sure, okay. Sure, go ahead. For now. I, just, I would say revisiting it, I think that Pete is the least talented person in his family. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it really pissed me off that he gets on stage and does covers and Elvis and stuff, because I'm like, wait a minute, man. It's just that the that then end part of the movie didn't work for me this, this time around. Do we know that those are covers in this world, though? Well, that's another thing that didn't work for me, not to belabor this discussion anymore. But I was no, just, that's okay. Go ahead. All right, so Jimi Hendrix is a real person in this, but right. And when you do that, that means that you're not given the proper artist credit for the the other stuff in this movie. So it's like they sh I don't think they should have made Hendrix exist. You know what I mean? Because then that means that the mamas and the papas should exist. That means Pat Benatar should exist. That was weird to me, you know? But I think the craziest part was how they just, they do this whole timeline of the history of music and then wait till the end and jumble the whole shit up. And I, I would like to have a conversation with the person that chose the sequence of music and go like, couldn't he have done an 80s song at the very end to kind of keep the lineup? I mean, I understand paying tribute to Maybe it's just because I hate Elvis. I don't know. <laughs> Gonzorific.com, Amazon On Demand. You can find my movies, uh, Pajama Nightmare, and um, Mondo Gonzo, The Underground Cinema, and the latest one, Late Night Cable. And um, uh, yeah, uh, on Prime, we have uh, Barry Scary and um, May of the Dead. And yeah, Gonzorific.com, if you want to buy some movies like The Erotic Couch and Dr. Humpenstein's Erotic Castle and all type of sexy low budget bullshit <laughs> and scotty d go ahead with uh, your final thought with this and uh where they can find you at yep i'm gonna also just really quickly uh, uh add to andrew's thing is that uh i think it's kind of this weird mixture that some of the music exists and some of it doesn't if you in the end credits it starts out by saying in this movie we portrayed these songs as being written by fictional characters he, we want to honor the people who actually wrote the songs, and then they showed those songs, and then they said, and we also used these songs by the original artists, and then they ran those up, and I think it was like this weird mixture. So it's because because the rule they really play fast and loose with the rules of this uh, of this uh, movie. So in order because. Let's face it, if they tried to make all original songs, eh, the, the songs might have sucked. You know? no, I think it's the sequence that ended up just tripping me up. I'm like, yeah. the sequence and having Jimi Hendrix, those are the only two things. Yeah, I just, God, dude, Pete, 
He's not, yeah, he's not the most talented, but I, but you know, he did come up with, well, if you're going to believe it, he came up with anything, everything from uh, night moves to crazy on you. So, <laughs> or, so. you know, or you can even look at it as, did he steal other people's stuff? No, I don't know. I think he had nothing better to do uh, on the street. So. Yeah, no, he uh, didn't. But, but, uh, but, but yeah, okay, so moviocrity.com. Uh, also catch my web series at vimeo.com slash channels slash moviocrity. Kind of have a big uh, change in my life happening in the next few weeks. Uh, might be uh, pulling up stakes and going to a completely different venue. So hopefully things will continue to be up to date. But if not, whether I'm putting up new stuff or not, that's where you can find me. Awesome. And uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> as we uh, do our final thought here, I'll continue it. Yeah, it was weird with adding Jimi Hendrix because up until that point, you they played off these songs as being kind of from other people. And by doing that, you kind of throw things, you end up grounding things a little bit more in the real life, which uh, was a little odd spin to take, though. It is Hendrix. I can understand where they were going with it. But uh, still, as far as the rules they set up, in the world they were played fast and loose so i agree with both uh both andrew and, and scott on that point and uh yeah we're just gonna send it off tonight you want to see uh, more of our stuff head over to specialmarkproductions.com where we have the spoiler room archive itunes and stitcher radio please subscribe like and comment we'd love to hear your thoughts on it find us on the twitters at spoiler room pd c is in cat s is in sam so that's Spoiler Room PDCS Twit there uh, as well If there's a film you'd like us to cover At some point here down in the Spoiler Room So we're going to say goodnight all And I hope you have a pleasant evening Say goodnight gentlemen Goodnight gentlemen Goodnight motherfuckers Yeah <laughs>